You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Think again with Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio. 8.55am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate, and what we can do about it all. Welcome to our 73rd program of Think Again and our 31st remote program in the time of the coronavirus. Think Again is presented to you by Borderlands Cooperative, an organization that has been dedicated to social change for all Almost 23 years now. Wow. I'm Jacques Boulet. And And I'm Jennifer Burrell. Today we want to continue our discussion about housing and dig a little bit more deeply in some of the aspects linked to social and public housing and the reasons why housing remains such a big problem in Australia, a country as as wealthy as it is. Mm, That's right. Last week I interviewed... Kate Shaw from the University of Melbourne and people might remember she explained the difference between social housing and public housing and how the term social housing here in Australia is now used to mainly cover only or mainly two types of housing. One, state-built owned and managed public housing and two, community housing which for a lot of people is a bit more mysterious. That's that community housing is owned and managed by private, non-profit housing associations. Yeah, and community housing has some funding from governments across the three levels of government. Mm. As for public housing, I think everyone and their dog is, a, or is, are aware, I should say, <laughs> that we've pretty much stopped investing in building new public housing let alone mm. maintaining it properly. Yeah, shame. Rather, the years, over years now, especially in Victoria, The public housing stock has been gradually demolished or sold off to private buyers Mm -hmm. or to community housing associations. Yeah. Kate pointed out that there's been a consensus by Australian governments, peak housing bodies and research centres too, that government spending should go to community housing rather than public housing. And that's by default. No one with any power or real say seems to be talking about funding public housing anymore. And I guess we'd say, and Kate certainly said, it's another example of blind faith in the market. That's blind faith that the market always offers the best, most efficient and cheapest way of running everything virtually, despite all the evidence that we have to the contrary. Just look at aged care and the guard's story at the COVID hotel quarantining just to start with. So today we thought we'd take a brief look at the background of public and other housing in Victoria and some of the changes that have happened over time. We'll also look at the many shapes of social or community housing in other countries, mainly in Europe. And we'll take a look at cooperative housing as one type of social housing, which could be added on to the variety of housing 
types if you want and we will mm. have also a bit of a conversation of what housing that means a house or a dwelling really means for people mm, yeah i mentioned in my conversation with kate shaw uh, that i was employed as a community development worker with public housing tenants in the mid 90s and i had the real privilege of knowing people then who had moved into the first public housing estate in australia in Garden City, which is a few kilometres southwest of the Melbourne CBD. One um, older tenant described to me the slum clearance program he witnessed firsthand because he was a child then, as people were moved from mostly inner city slums to the new houses. And he, he told me uh, on numerous times about the difference it made to his family and other families in the 1930s. They had a real sense of pride and for the first time a feeling that they could make a life from their, from a, a stable and decent home base that they hadn't mm. had before. Yeah, that sentiment was certainly confirmed in the large piece, piece of research we did with Borderlands about cooperative or common equity housing mm -hmm. that came about in the late 70s in, in Victoria. And we will come back to some of that later. Yeah, and, and don't forget in August, Gary D told mm -hmm. us on our program his own personal story of homelessness and what it meant to him to finally find a home in public housing and to have an address mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of all things. Mm. But going back to some history of public housing in Victoria, as a community development worker, I used to do letter drops to freestanding houses around Garden City, which were public housing, in what's now the city of Port Phillip. So I had to carry a list of the addresses because only a minority of the houses along different streets were public housing, the rest were private. So for quite a while, I assumed these houses I was dropping off newsletters to were spot purchases by the government, until an older tenant explained to me that they all used to be public housing, all the houses in these streets. And tenants had way back been given the opportunity to slowly buy their house. A substantial minority didn't bother, as public housing tenancy was treated and viewed then as a stable house for life. So if it's a stable and secure house for life, why buy when renting your place at an affordable price will be the same thing? Yeah. Mm, mm, how, how times have changed, haven't they? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's almost unthinkable now. Yeah. So as I mentioned, the first uh, public housing in Australia was built in Victoria in Garden City. This was part of what was called a slum clearance program starting in the 30s during the Depression and continuing after Second World War. So it's interesting that public housing was initially built by the State Bank of Victoria from 1926. So I think it's interesting to think that that was considered a role for a bank mm, and, of mm. course, it was a government bank. In the late 1930s, the Housing Commission of Victoria took over. Then there was another surge in building of public housing following World War II to address housing shortages then. It was provided within a view of housing, very much of housing as a human right following the war, and returned soldiers and large families were given priority for the housing. So other public housing estates were built in what were then outer suburbs and close to industry, for example, Heidelberg, 
and interestingly, Olympic Village after the Olympic Games of 1956 was turned into public housing and it was also built places like Broadmeadows, Box Hill South, Ascot Vale. So funding for this housing came from the federal government to the states under the Commonwealth State Housing Agreements, which mm. were in place for many, many years. Yep. And it was a necessary transfer, of course, as states are pretty limited in the ways they are allowed to collect tax. And most taxing power is held by the federal government. Yeah, Confusingly, right. though, one has to one has to say that other housing related and house building taxes are collected by the states and they are linked to the fact that they need to develop new areas for housing, including also roads mm. and amenities. Yeah, that is confusing, Shard. But mm. I guess I do remember the federal government used to pay for the building of public housing through Commonwealth mm. state housing agreements for many, many years. That's yeah. right. But, mm. but going back to the 1950s, where I left off, the public housing building program pretty much much came to an end, that huge surge after Second World War mm -hmm. in 1956 with the arrival of the Liberal Menzies government. In fact, apart from the high-rises, a lot of public housing was then sold off to private owners, about 900,000 properties um, I, I've heard. Public housing was often sold to people who had lived in the houses and then they needed to borrow for mortgages. So, the relative stability of public rentals was exchanged for the instability and insecurity of bank loans and interest mm -hmm. rates. But still in the 1960s, we did have the building of the public housing high-rises, which are still highly visible and well-known in the inner suburbs surrounding Melbourne CBD. So this was 40 high-rise towers over 21 sites. So that was a huge building program. Mm -hmm, that's right. And given the fact that high-rises were still rather rare in marvellous Melbourne at that time, they certainly mm -hmm. added to the stigma attached to public housing because of the fact that there was a convergence of poverty and other marginalising factors, which then suddenly all lived together in these you know, poking out in the air kind of places. And compared with what still is promoted as the Australian dream, the privately owned home. Mm. And of course, that marginalising is directly related to mm -hmm. the lack of housing stock because exactly. to be eligible, a lot of people mm. have to really have high support needs or right. um, problems. And so you mm -hmm. defund the public housing and then you then they become more marginalised and definitely the tenants I spoke to within the mid-1990s, they were talking mm -hmm. about that. They were talking about how the public housing used to be more mainstream even though it was for people on lower income in the mm -hmm. past and that, mm -hmm. they were actually seeing the change then. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as for um, the Australian dream of the privately owned home, which many are overwhelmingly still pursuing, um, this dream is becoming more and more out of reach, of course, with the high escalating housing prices. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, um, according to the census in 2016, about a third of Australians were renting, and that's almost five years ago now. And mm. the ABS stats show the proportion of people renting is rising over time and, as we know, becoming more and more of the norm Mm. Mm -hmm. 
particularly also because houses become less and less affordable to buy. We will have a little bit of music now to catch our breath. Blood, mm -hmm. Blood and Bone by the Night Terrors, followed by a promo. listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. 
You're listening to Think Again, 3CR 855 AM on your dial, 3CR digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Today we're looking again at the history of public housing in Victoria and the trend towards its privatisation. We'll also look at some more progressive approaches to housing. Mm -hmm. To round off our brief history of public housing from the late 70s to now, building of public housing was winding down and access to our eligibility for public housing was restricted, as we said before, to those seen as most in need, Mm. which, of course, made the estates, the high-rise estates, even more marginalised. And as we have already pointed out, the tragic selling off of stock was then quite rapidly accelerating. Which it seems we never get back. Mm, that's mm, all right. one way. So with a lot of stock now um, on prime real estate land, um, when I worked in public housing in the nineties, tenants told me that they'd seen. They told me this story that they'd seen a local politician being shown around public housing properties in Port Melbourne, and he was heard to exclaim that this is prime beachfront real estate. Of course, it was fronting Port Phillip Bay Mm. and too good for public tenants. (laughs) So no matter how accurate or not that is, that um, account is, the tenants were certainly perceiving even then that local public housing stock was under threat. And I guess they were in a backhanded way reflecting on their own stigmatised position that if, if this is becoming so valuable... Mm-hmm. Um, it's too good for them, yeah. yeah. And and it was a, it was around the 90s that we came up also with the tricky idea that rent assistance could replace the building of new housing. That's exactly, and, that's right. And, and, of course, as happens with these things, the, this is the public funding that finds its way into private pockets and this, this right. is another way it's happened. Mm. Mm, private pockets which already have benefited from the negative gearing. Uh, yes, mm. as Kate Shaw pointed out last week, and we mentioned earlier, there's a present trend to slowly sell off our remaining public housing, privatising it by selling it to individuals or through transfers to community housing organisations. This Mm -hmm. was often after public protests from locals and groups groups of uh, activists. The developers Mm -hmm. to whom the land is then sold are expected to create what is called a social mix consisting Mm. of private and social housing. The private proportion usually stays around 80%, uh, as they generate, of course, most money. And they leave the proportion for social housing totally insufficient by something like 20% or even less. Mm, Yeah. And Kate also pointed out that there are uh, many more models of state-subsidised social housing overseas. Um, In fact, the term social housing acts as a sort of, uh, uh, I guess, a fuzzy smokescreen masking a rather radical privatisation project that's been mm-hmm. happening over the last few decades, as we've been saying, but really not much commented on in public discourse or in the media. Um, anyway, I, I know social housing in its many forms is a subject close to your heart, Jacques, so maybe you can tell us a bit about social housing and its forms, the forms it mm. takes in Europe. Yeah, I certainly have worked in projects to do with social housing in, in Germany for quite a while. 
uh, and it is close to my heart, as we have done quite a bit of research also with borderlands in the area of affordable and more diverse types of housing. Before going to Europe, though, Europe, though, it's important to mention the fact, and we already mentioned it before, that Australia has assented to the United Nations Human Rights Declaration that everyone has a right to appropriate shelter. That right is too often immediately translated here as the great Australian dream. Mm-hmm. And Wikipedia has an interesting definition of it. It mm. is the belief that in Australia, home ownership can lead to a better life and is an expression of success and security. Mm. But of course, usually also that dream is wrapped around a nuclear family. That obviously Mm. also gives a lot of power to the real estate industry, as we have noticed before. And we notice that also every day and certainly on Saturdays in our daily newspapers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. That type of ownership is what is summarized in the concept of private housing, either owned or rented, and is always juxtaposed to social or public housing in which the ownership sits with the state or with associations, as we explained last week and before. Yeah, so, so Jacques, you're thing- saying the private... Sorry, the concept of private housing, so you're mm-hmm. contrasting it, or it's always juxtaposed to social or public housing, so it's one That's or the right. other. That's mm-hmm. correct. And between these two types, there is almost nothing else available in this country. Mm-hmm. But elsewhere, in European countries and in Canada, for example, cooperative ownership and living is very widespread. In Sweden, up to 15% of all housing stock is cooperatively operated, representing approximately half a million people across all demographics. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of upper, lower class people uh, doing this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, Norway has over 700,000 cooperative members in houses, about 15% as well of Mm. housing stock nationally. And listen to this. Mm. Listen to this. In Oslo, 40% of all houses are cooperatively owned and run. Wow. In Germany, 5 million people are housed in cooperative housing, about 10% of all housing stock. And in Canada, a quarter million people living in cooperative housing. And that is expanding because additional land via several community land trusts uh, is being made available for those types of housing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just very quickly, uh, that means cooperative housing means that people have much greater influence over what it is that happens to those houses. But we'll come back to that later anyway. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12 p.m. on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. You're listening to Think Again, 3CR 855 AM on your dial, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Today we're looking at the running down and winding back of public housing, our one-eyed focus on home ownership and also exploring some better ways of doing housing. Yeah. So Jacques, can you tell us a bit more about your research into housing cooperatives and perhaps what insights you've gained that we could learn from or, or even 
transfer or put into practice here in Australia? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, in the late 60s, or, uh, in the late, not, sorry, in the late 70s it was, the Whitlam Federal Labor Government developed policies to address the needs of disadvantaged communities. And so it's quite a new language, as we have talked about that in a previous program when we talked about the Australian Assistance Plan. A new language came into play, and people were then talking about local management, mm-hmm. bottom-up community action, as well as the right to independent living for those who were previously living independent accommodations like in in, in uh, boarding homes and things like that mm-hmm. uh, or in special accommodation because of their disabilities or other disadvantages. So that has been going on since the late 70s. At the moment now there are 120 housing cooperatives in Victoria coordinated by the Common Equity Housing Limited with various types of types of resident management systems, but all are trying to provide affordable housing and they have various modalities of co-housing as well as spatially separate housing with collective management mm-hmm. by people living in those houses. Mm-hmm. There's something the uh, Common Equity Housing Limited, they are now owning something like 2,200 properties. Mm. Uh, where uh, I think altogether the last figure I heard was something like close to 6,000 people. Mm -hmm. The advantages of these forms of building and living are many. First, it increases the diversity of occupancy types Mm -hmm. between the ownership, private, rental and the public social housing options. Mm -hmm. Cooperative housing, secondly, is for people with other life aspirations in their social and personal and ecological aspirations than just working towards owning a dream home. Mm -hmm. The third is it is a preventative approach, particularly a preventative response to the flow-on of negative economic, social and psychological effects of not having a house or because of the inaffordability of those houses. Yeah. So, Jacques, I I can see we're coming to the end of the program, but just quickly, can you tell me what you mean by preventative response to well, usually the way we, negative yeah. economic, mm. social, and psychological mm. effects? Yeah, the, the 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 usual way in which we deal with uh, people's other problems. Uh, is that we deal with those first, people, disability, and all of that, because we have individualized all these things, mm-hmm. and rather than start with giving them a house and then notice, like for so many people, that many of the other psychological problems, stress problems, all of that disappear because there is security around having a home rather than only dealing with the lack of a home after you have often unsuccessfully dealt with many of the other problems. Okay, so deal with the housing first rather than leave the lack of housing to lead to a lot of problems for people in the first place. Yep. Yeah. A final advantage for which we found in our research was that cooperative housing offers members and occupants degrees of security, control over and participation in decision-making processes, as I already said before. So, yeah, participation in decision-making process, well, that's a really laudable goal in all areas of our lives, I guess, and mm. some actually call that democracy, Jacques. 
<laughs> exactly. They and, do. And wouldn't that be great if there was at the core of our one of our pr- central needs, emotional, psychological, mm-hmm. social, physical needs, housing. Mm-hmm. So right. I'm aware that we've come to the end of the program, but I suppose I'd just like to say I'd love to see a lot more housing options for Australians than what's uh, currently on offer. And hopefully we can continue this conversation in late, um, following programs. Yeah, for people who are interested, the Common Equity Housing Limited organisation in Richmond, uh, they uh, are certainly available for to be consulted, uh, uh-huh. find information, their website, https uh, at www.cehl.com.au. Mm-hmm. So again, www.cehl dot com dot au their phone is nine two oh eight oh eight zero zero finally our last community uh, issue got really good responses from uh, our readers and the next one will be ready to be sent out by mid-november great thanks for listening to think again on 3cr community radio remember if you want to send us a message or ask about anything from today's program, you can email Borderlands, borders at borderlands.org.au. Just put Think Again in the subject line. Our programs are available by podcast and the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au. We would also like to thank Clive Bourne again for excellent technical production mm-hmm. and musical and music selections. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, stay tuned for Jailbreak, which gives a voice to prison inmates, their families and their friends. But first we have World Turning by Yothu Gindi. <laughs>